Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Joyce Carol Oates on her latest novel, Babysitter. Joyce Carol Oates is a recipient of the National Book Critics Circle Lifetime Achievement Award, the National Book Award, the Penn Malamud Award, the LA Times Book Award and the Jerusalem Prize. Her books include We Were the Mulvaney's, Blonde, Carthage, A Book of American Martyrs, Hazards of Time Travel, My Life as a Rat and Night, Sleep, Death, the Stars. And she is a professor of humanities at Princeton University. And today we're going to be talking about Joyce's latest book, which is Babysitter. Joyce, welcome back to Little Atoms. Thank you. First of all, tell us how you would describe this novel. Well, The Babysitter is a novel that I first began writing in perhaps 1978 because I lived in a Detroit area and there was a, a serial killer who preyed upon young children at that time. So I was in the midst of an unfolding drama. Some of my friends had children of the age of the, uh, the babysitter's victims. So like many people who are living through something that's happening in real time, I was very caught up emotionally in this drama. And of course, I didn't know how it would end. No one knew. I began writing the novel probably in 1978. And then I set it aside. I wrote about 100 pages. And then many years later, I mean, decades later, I wrote a short story called Babysitter. So I was sort of hearkening back to that, that time in my life. I was a much younger at that time, and life was different for me. And part of the appeal of my writing, Babysitter, is it takes me back to Detroit in the 1970s, which was a very heady, kind of exciting, sort of a boom time, much more than it is now. And so how does the, the, the short story, because it mentions at the back of the book that there was a short story published called Babysitter. Obviously, the novel massively expands on that. But what was the, the contents of the, of the short story then? That's basically the first chapter of the novel. And then continuing with that chapter, the woman goes to see the man in the hotel and then she comes home again. So that's the short story. It's probably only about 15 pages long, but it's very abbreviated. And in the background is the Oakland County child killer. 
or babysitter, as he began to be called by journalists. So that's sort of in the background, this uh, this very horrific, cruel, sadistic serial killer preying on children, kind of in the background. In the foreground, a drama is working itself out with a woman who's attracted to a man uh, about whom she doesn't know very much. So the novel has two stories, so to speak. And the novel's in the historic present. So when I'm writing about something in the past, of course, I've lived through it and I know how it ends. But when we were living at that time, it was a drama that was unfolding and we had no idea how it would end. So tell us something about the the babysitter of your novel. What is he doing? Well, the babysitter himself is based on a, a real person. I, I don't know if you're aware of that, but anyone who's listening to this podcast, you can just Google babysitter, Oakland County child killer, and the information will come up. The uh, law enforcement was looking for this person for a long time, and they had some suspects or persons of interest, as they're sometimes called. They obviously interviewed and interrogated quite a few people, but I don't believe they ever made any arrests. They thought they knew who probably it had been, somebody who subsequently committed suicide. So he's not living now. And it could have been another person. They had another suspect, and I think he's not living now either. When I undertook to write the novel, I wanted sort of to explore the possibilities of who Babysitter might have been and what the circumstances were. And it seemed to me that, as with Harvey Weinstein or Jeffrey Epstein, this pedophile would probably have had to be protected by people around him, or as we call it today, enabled. He had a whole network of people who were enabling him. That's a theme of 2022, I think, looking at pedophilia and sex offenders as people who've been enabled by others who help them and protect them and hide what they're doing. But in the, in the 1970s, I don't think that was ever, ever discussed. It seems like it's, it's a relatively new theme. So that, that was interesting for me to revisit the scene of this old crime, which was never solved, but to sort of look at it through the eyes of the 21st century. So the woman that you described in the short story is Hannah in this novel. Tell us something about who she is. Well, Hannah's a, a, a fairly young woman. Well, she's, she's 39 years old. She's very attractive and quite well-to-do. She's married to an extremely well-to-do husband. She doesn't exactly know what his business is. He's an executive and he makes a good deal of money. He's also from a wealthy family living in Gross Point, a very famous wealthy suburb of Detroit. So she is a woman who has two children. As I say, she's very well-to-do, but she's feeling invisible. She doesn't feel that her husband really loves her any longer, except in a kind of companionable, uh, routine way. And her children are very dependent on her, and they adore their mother, but they don't really know who she is. They, they adore their mother, and she's feeling that she is undefined. She looks at her calendar, and it's filled up with all these events like luncheons and dinners and meetings of friends of the library and art museum and different charitable organizations, but she doesn't feel that her soul or her spiritual 
our inner identity is really uh, given any kind of existence. But I think we all feel like that once in a while. And she embarks on an affair with a man, a man who will will say something about in a little while. But first of all, just staying on Hannah, she embarks on this affair, which is, even without knowing the subsequent events of the novel, seems incredibly impulsive and reckless. Well, I, I was basing it on events that did take place in Detroit in the 1970s. It must have been another era, 1960s and 1970s. There were perfectly respectable, intelligent people who did embark upon these love affairs. You know, they would meet somebody and they would have relationships outside the marriage that when I look back on it from my vantage point today, of course, I'm much older, it seems so reckless and seems so strange. But many people were doing things like that in the wealthy suburbs of Detroit at that time. So Hannah, in a way, is kind of a novice. Like, she's never been with any man except her husband. And they've been married. They've been married a while now. I can't remember, maybe 11 years or so. And she's feeling that her husband doesn't really, you know, doesn't really desire her much anymore. He, they argue over little things. <laughs> he's the kind of person who's always challenging, and he's always a little bit irritable. I think many women have... <laughs> Many women have husbands a little like that. And you can sort of tell that though they like you or they even love you, they don't any longer find you interesting and they don't necessarily respect you as much as they once did. I mean, I'm not necessarily speaking about myself, but sort of a general uh, middle-aged feeling that people have in marriages that have been in a way too comfortable. And they do have a lot of money, so she doesn't have to work. And so she's She's sort of uh, looking around, I think, for some other chapter in her life. And the man, YK, as he is known to her, she never really finds out his real identity. Tell us what you can about him, because obviously we don't want to give too much away about the story, and it's, he's sort of vitally important to it. But what do we know? What does Hannah know about him? Well, I don't like to give too much away, because obviously when, when he reveals himself, clearly and very baldly and boldly and kind of disrespectfully to her. I think most people, including in a way Hannah, but not that surprised, you know, like, is he serious about her? He's so much um, a chameleon. He can kind of make himself into these different shapes. But he's a certain kind of person who exists on the margins of well-to-do society. People like him facilitate things for other people. Sometimes they do have love affairs with well-to-do women, or they're involved in some way with men, with investing money. They do things that are not exactly illegal, but they're kind of in and out. You know, He also is based on at least one person whom I knew at that time. Sometimes as time goes by, you discover this person is actually a criminal, you know, or he's, he's, he's a bigamist, or he murdered somebody, or he's under suspicion of murder, you know, but he also is playing a kind of game. He has relationships with women who are well-to-do. Mysteriously, then their money starts 
moving into his pockets, you know, is he blackmailing people? Now, of course, the whole Jeffrey Epstein phenomenon took place much later, but Jeffrey Epstein was blackmailing people. He would get maybe naive, restless husbands with with a lot of money and sort of invite them to his parties and they got involved with girls who are in fact underage. And then I think the whole motive was really just blackmail. So too with YK, he is blackmailing someone and he is involved, he's very much involved with babysitter with the serial killer. And there's one other character that I wanted to talk about that features later on in the book, but you know it comes to play a quite a significant part. Uh, again, we probably can't say too much about Mikey, who is that character, but tell us something about him. Well, it often, it often happens in a novel of mine that a young person, it could be a, a young woman, a girl, or an adolescent boy, there's something about the age, I think, and the relative naivete, and even a kind of weird idealism of someone like Mikey, who is an orphan. He's, a, he's like a street kid in, in Detroit. He's somebody who's he's not homeless. He does have employment, but he doesn't have much money. And he's he's at the margins of proper society. He could easily be a petty criminal. I wouldn't have thought of him as being a murderer, but he could also be a drug dealer. He's somebody who has to make his way. He never finished high school. Of course, he never went to college. He was an orphan. He was put into a, a Catholic boys' home for boys without any families. There are these children's homes in the United States. I don't know to what extent the Catholic Church is still uh, supporting these homes, but in the past there were many of them, and sometimes the children were orphans, and sometimes their mothers gave them up and couldn't, you know, they were ill or drug addicts and couldn't take care of them. So Mikey is, um, he's in the employ of YK. And he gets involved with Hannah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're 
so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Joyce Carol Oates and we're talking about her new novel, Babysitter. And Joyce, you mentioned the novel is set in Detroit <laughs> in, in the late 70s, 1977. And you lived there yourself and Detroit acts as a, another character really in this novel. The portrayal of it is so vivid. Tell us something about what the Detroit of 1977, how did 1977 find Detroit? Well, thank you for saying it's like a character. I do feel most of my settings and my novels and short stories are, the settings are like real, you know, presences, a sort of palpable kind of a spiritual dimension to landscape and cityscape, I think. Well, to me, Detroit is just, um, the memory is, is so vivid and it's so filled with energy. I think of myself driving on the expressways. Hannah spends a lot of time in her car. She's driving down to the inner city of Detroit, and, she, and she's going on the John Lodge Expressway, which doesn't mean anything to anybody except if you live in Detroit. So it's sort of you're moving along with all this traffic, and it's like thrumming, you know, like the very pulse speed of the universe, this uh, momentum and excitement, a stream like the river. And she's being borne along on it. Now, I wrote this novel, I have to say parenthetically, I wrote this novel during the pandemic. I think I was, it was a very, very height of the pandemic, March 2020, when we had no idea there would ever be a vaccine. Our institutions here in the United States were shut down in New York and New Jersey, where I live in New Jersey. Everything was, was shut down. Universities closed, schools closed. We were told to stay in our houses. We were all in a state of acute anxiety. Now, I remember that, but now I'm not in that same state. I actually wrote an essay for the, for the TLS about being in quarantine with, with a cat, with my cat, Zanchi. And so when I reread that essay that I wrote for the TLS, back maybe in April 2020, it's a very different mindset from what we have now. We were all really anxious, and many of us were insomniac, and we walked around, and I remember walking around the house and being unable to sit down very for very long, like sit down for five minutes and then get up and walk away and do something else. So the novel was written during the height of that fraught, stressful interim which probably lasted more than a year. 
Now, we all adjusted to it. We did adjust because human beings adjust to almost any environment. And so we got through it. But the uh, the tension and babysitter in the sense that something awful is probably going to happen, that you could die, you could turn the page of the novel, and you're reading about somebody who has been garroted, who's been, who'd been murdered by babysitter. I just felt it was a world, I mean, the world may still be the same way, but I just felt it was a world so fraught with fractures and interruptions and a, a, a collective fear and malaise. So at least in the United States, we were in quite a collective panic. The novel reflects that it's in the present, historic present. It's, it's not a story that says once upon a time. It's a story that's unfolding like a movie. So when you start reading it, you, you're caught up in this movie. 1977 Detroit is, as you said, it's, it's something of a boom town. There's, a, there's lots and lots of, of building going on in downtown. There's a whole new, I mean, a city that is basically really set apart for the well-to-do in the city, tall hotels and, and office buildings. You mentioned the, the, like the freeways into the city. And like in a lot of places, this is something that's not just happened in Detroit, but in many cities. Um, Los Angeles, I'm thinking of in particular, but these freeways were built deliberately, let's say, through existing historical black neighborhoods, which obviously had like a, a a massive effect on them. And this book is is it's filled with racial tension. There's a character that a very fleeting mention of a character, Ezekiel Jones, who who plays a pivotal part in in the role, and then is um there's an extrajudicial murder by the Detroit police of this man. Tell us something about these tensions in the novel. Well, I lived through the civil disturbance in 1967 in Detroit, which is kind of carelessly called the Detroit riot. You've probably heard of it. So I always wanted to examine the roots of that also. White people who live in certain neighborhoods, like middle class or upper middle class neighborhoods in Detroit, really didn't have much idea of what was happening elsewhere in the city. And even at the time of the riot itself, and for days and weeks afterward, we were just fed a kind of tabloid news of, uh, you know, shootings and burnings, fires, and all sorts of sensational atrocities of different kinds. It was only really much later, John Hershey wrote um, a book, which was the Algiers motel incident, I think. And that was that was serialized in the New Yorker. So that was that was some years later. So then when you read that you saw, oh, the riot was really caused by by white police officers. Like you don't really know that at the time some, there's an eruption like civil disorder and a riot and people are terrified and there's looting and burning. And you don't know what's going on until historians step in or maybe journalists investigative journalists. Well, the roots of that were many acts of harassment and brutality by the white police officers. That provoked the black citizens to kind of uprise, you know, rise up against them. But we didn't know that at the time. So it's a good example, I think, of how you can't really write or even understand anything when you're living through it. Because you see the superficial most sensational aspects 
And of course, we're all frightened. There's lots of paranoia. And race, racial animosities just feed upon paranoia and people not knowing what's really, really happening. Now, we're kind of reliving all that in the United States since the campaign in 2016, which was so incendiary and so racist. So we're we're still kind of enthralled to this paranoia about one third of the country is extremely conservative and regressive. I don't want to say that one third of the country's racist, but they certainly are voting for racist politicians. And so we're going through a tremendous cataclysm, I think, really, since 2016. I don't really want to get into that. But a lot of the, the politics of today in America, 2022, are really sort of infused in, in babysitter. I'm looking back and seeing the roots of the uh, the roots of that kind of racism, where when there's something violent happens, like there's abductions and murders, the first thing that some people think of, oh, this is black people, you know, like this kind of instinctive xenophobia or paranoia, which is the root of racism, but it happens sort of fast with people. They're not reasoning. Now, Hannah is not like that. She actually is much more reasonable. And she says to her husband, well, why would, why would a black person be doing this, you know? And he's not really listening to her. So Wes gets a gun, and his behavior is very, very typical of white persons in some parts of the United States. They just start buying guns. I was also taken by the, obviously in the city of Detroit, there's a a, a very sort of strict divide between this new shiny downtown and then the city itself and the suburbs and the suburbs are you know where the the rich white people live and we see this clearly through the ongoing relationship between Hannah and Esmelda who is her Filipino housekeeper and the the relationship that these two have that that Hannah basically both you know absolutely relies constantly on Esmelda's help and completely resents it Yes, that's very typical also. Ismelda is actually based on a real person. And somebody said, well, my editor at Canop said that Ismelda was the the real heroine of the novel. Ismelda and Mikey, you know, they're kind of these people, they're at the periphery of, of money and power, but there are people who act. And Ismelda is just a really, really nice, wonderful person. She's sending money back for her own children in the Philippines, and she's sort of holding this family together in the white suburb. And she's very, very discreet, and she never talks back to her her mistress. She's just probably smarter. She's probably smarter than either Hannah or her husband. You mentioned Weinstein and and Epstein and and obviously those guys were doing their thing for years and years and years until they were relatively recently uncovered and and you know we had the Me Too movement and I think you know I lived through the 1970s as well but I think a young person you know perhaps a millennial reading this novel will be amazed that Hannah repeatedly goes back to this man who assaults her repeatedly and the book is soaked with that sort of 70s sexual violence and misogyny and I just wanted to talk to you about having to write that you know writing that sort of thing you know how how that was 
Well, it's hard to, it's really hard to talk about. I think that behind um, much of what we do as writers, we are taking reckless risks. We're setting out to write a novel about a certain subject. We are going to spend maybe one or two years of our lives on something. It's, it's analogous to Hannah getting in her car, and she doesn't even seem to be making a conscious decision. Like she's At one point, she, should she turn left and go home? Or she should turn right and go down to the inner city of Detroit. So it seems like the steering wheel is almost turning the car. But I think that the alternative is just to continue with her life. Now, most of us would never take such risks. And we continue with our lives in a certain way. And and the lives are somewhat predictable. There are always things that might happen. Health, all sorts of health crises can happen. Or accidents can happen, but say your life is plotted and planned out in a certain way, like she's got the calendar, people in the suburbs who are well-to-do, every day of their lives is filled. I've actually seen calendars like this. Some people have, they have a luncheon and they have a dinner, you know, they have drinks at 5 p.m. and they're like every day they're doing these social things, Saturday, Sunday, like all weekend they're, they're going out. For a while, when my first husband, Ray Smith, and I lived in Detroit, we went to many of these events. And I remember how much people were drinking. Uh, We were relatively young. I was just in my 20s. So I was more like an observer. And I actually did not drink. But my women friends, some of them were sort of like Hannah. And there are other women in the novel. They're sort of like, (laughs) it's hard to Maybe hard to explain why they would do the things they did. Uh, women whose husbands are multimillionaires and they live in really nice houses. They don't have to work and they don't even have to take care of their children. They belong to country clubs and they're doing things that take them out of the house. They do get involved with men and the men represent some sort of adventure. I mean, many of us, I think, you know, in an academic world, we just don't live that way. We're not that reckless. But when I set out to write a novel, and our friends of mine write novels too, we are actually embarking upon a journey that could be reckless, could be heartbreaking. You may possibly never finish the novel, or it doesn't get published, or it's published but nobody likes it. You know, any kind of creative effort or project, that involves this recklessness too. So to finish off then, can I get you to read us a bit? Yes, why don't I read the first little tiny chapter, which is just like a paragraph, and then I read a couple pages of the second chapter. Chapter one, she asks herself why. Because he touched her, just her wrist, a brush of his fingers, a sidelong glance, because he's asked, which one are you? Meaning, which man's wife? Because it was a time and a place when to be a woman, at least a woman who looked like her, was to be a man's wife. Second chapter, Do Not Disturb. On the 61st floor of the hotel tower, he awaits her. No name for him that is likely to be a true name, very little about him that is likely to be true, enough for her to know he, him. She is the sole passenger in the elevator, which is a sleek glass cubicle rising rapidly and silently into the atrium as into the void. Below, the crowded hotel lobby sinks away. Beside her, 
open floors and railings fly downward. A sleek new way of elevating so different from the larger, slower moving cumbersome elevators of her childhood. In elevators like these, you are your own operator. Her sleek Italian leather handbag, she carries not slung from her right wrist as usual, but carried snug beneath her right arm and steadied and supported by her left hand for it is perceptibly heavier than usual. Still, the handbag is so positioned that its gleaming brass label shines outward, Prada. By instinct, unconscious, vanity's gesture, even on this day, Prada. Is this the final day of her life, or is this the final day of a life? Of course, she has memorized the room number, 6183. Could be a tattoo at her wrist, his claim on her. Claim, doom. She's not a poet. She's not a person adroit or comfortable with words. Yet these words seem to her soothing like smooth, cool stones laid over the shuttered eyes of the dead to bring them peace. His room, in fact, it's a suite, two spacious rooms overlooking the Detroit River where he stays when he visits Detroit. Though it's possible he has different rooms for different visitors, she would not know this. He has never confided in her. At the 61st floor of the cubicle stops with a hiss and a mild jolt. The glass door slides open. She has no choice but to step out. Something has been decided. She has no choice. Gripping the handbag beneath her arm, has she no choice? Wondering, is he awaiting her near the elevator, eager for her arrival? She doesn't see anyone in neither direction, any human figure. You can still turn back, she thinks. If now, no one will know. So I've been talking to Joyce Carol Oates. We've been talking about her new novel, Babysitter, which is out now in the UK from Forty State. Joyce, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you. Sorry my kitty didn't get here. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, 
wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.